church as you're having a seat. Uh, if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you guys. Scott, great job. <coughs> Thanks for leading this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing in our look at the book of Ephesians. And so we are continuing through. Uh, we're going verse by verse. But real quick, today's St. Patty's Day, right? I thought I'd give a quick St. Patrick's Day uh, lesson, if you will, because I find it interesting. And I didn't really know uh, who St. Patrick was or what he was all about. So I'm going to spend uh, 40 seconds because I got a lot to get through. But I thought it was worthwhile because it's fascinating. I don't know where we get the green beer and leprechaun thing from. Uh, it was just sort of, I don't know how that happened, but St. Patrick uh, was a European. He was British. He was, uh, he was taking a ship to Ireland. He was captured. This is just trivia. This is nothing to do with the sermon. This is a side note, but I find it interesting. He was captured. He was enslaved by uh, a group of people in Ireland. He was enslaved for many, many years. He came to faith. During his enslavement, someone was a Christian preached the gospel to him, came to faith, believed in Jesus while he was there in Ireland, Ireland escaped his enslavement, went back to uh, Britain, Great Britain, he, and then the Lord called him back to the Irish to preach the good news of the gospel to this area, and he spent uh, many, 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 many years proclaiming the good news of Jesus uh, to the Irish. And so that's why they believe that St. Patrick was one that changed the landscape of their country because of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel, sweeping through uh, those people because of St. Patrick's ministry uh, of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Interesting tidbit about St. Patrick. Green beer, leprechauns, four-leaf clovers, no idea where that came from. I think we added that later. So that's the real story of St. Patrick. Fascinating. Uh, Cliff's notes. Ephesians, nothing to do with St. Patrick. Uh, chapter 4. I just thought it was fascinating. It was a little side note. Here we go. We got a lot to, we got a lot to get through this morning, and so I'm going to jump in. I'm going to read the text, and then we will dive in. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing from prison to a church in Ephesus that has been planted to a group of people. He says this in chapter 4, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I'm going to skip the, the parenthetical statement there, the clarification, go down to verse 11. And he gave the gifts he gave and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint 
which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow and builds itself up into love. So here we've got in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writing from Roman captivity to this church, this church that's, that's, that loves Jesus, that has been called. He's writing this section. And up until this point, if you remember, we've, we've spent the last eight weeks or however long it's been as we began our journey in Ephesians, there's been no moral commandments. There's been no do this and don't do that. There's been no... Um, there's been no commandments at all that Paul's really given to us. He's simply, in the last four, last three chapters, he simply highlighted the goodness of Jesus, who we are in Christ, our theological position of who we are as sons and daughters of Christ. There's been no commandments at all. And so he's just pointed us to our position in Christ. And for the first time in this entire book, that very first verse in Chapter 4, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with you have been called. There's an old story that this reminds me of. It's a story about Alexander the Great. It's one of these old stories where I don't really know if it's true, but if it's not true, it should be because it's a good story. So I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Uh, the story goes something like this. <clears throat> Alexander the Great, the great military conqueror, conquered like large chunks of land through his military conquests, right? And so story goes as one of his commanders brings in this young soldier before this tribunal, this military court that Alexander the Great kind of proceeds over. They bring this young boy in, this commander, and uh, Alexander uh, uh, looks at him. He's obviously, this boy has infringed on the military, infringed on uh, the rules in some form or fashion. And he looks at this 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 young man, he's almost a young boy, he's, he could, he's probably a teenager, and this kind of heart goes out to him, he's like, look at this young boy, he's fighting in my military, he's wearing my uniform, uh, he's out bearing a sword for the cause that we have in front of us, and his heart goes out to him, and Alexander the Great looks at this boy and says, what's your name in this, in this court? And the boy, uh, he kind of has his head down, he's ashamed, he's having to be there, and he says, my name is Alexander, sir, and I was named after you. And as the story goes, um, Alexander looks over at his, his, one of his commanders and he says, um, what is this boy Alexander here for? What's the cause of his court-martial or whatever, whatever they called it? And his commander said, uh, sir, this, this young soldier ran in the face of the enemy. He ran away. Uh, the enemy was coming and bearing down and he ran. He dropped his sword and he went the other direction. And as the story goes, Alexander the Great, his furrow darkened. And he looked just piercingly into this young boy's face. And he said to him again, what's your name? And the boy kind of straightened up. He's like, oh my goodness, something, this is bad. This is bad news. Uh, it's Alexander, sir. He said, it's Alexander, sir. And he looks at him again. He says even louder, what's your name, boy? He says, it's Alexander. And, he's, and then the, as the story goes, Alexander gets out from behind his chair, walks up to the boy, grabs him by the tunic, and pulls him up to his face and says, what is your name? And at this point, he's just, he's, he's like, oh, no, what's going to happen? He says, Alexander. And the story goes like this. Uh, he looks down at him. Alexander the Great, and he says, 
young soldier? He goes, you will change your conduct or you will change your name. You may go. And he walks out. Uh, And as I was reading through Ephesians 4, uh, it reminded me a lot of that story. Uh, This is the Apostle Paul. He has in verses 1, or in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's shown us our name. We bear the name of Christ. We are adopted. We are chosen. We've been saved. We've been brought into a new family. The dividing walls that once separate us have been demolished. And now we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We will one day be with him in glory. We are, uh, we are crowned with Christ. We are raised with Christ. We are uh, baptized with Christ and into his death and resurrection. We now have the name of Christ as believers And so chapter 4, this very first statement, this is Paul's, this is that moment where he says, Now, church, in light of all that I've given to you, I gave you all that you needed. I gave you the inheritance. I gave you blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is now yours. He he looks down at the church, and Paul reminds these people, reminds you and I today, he says, Now, in light of that, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. This is, this is where the book shifts gears for us. We have a pivot here, and we get where the rubber meets the road here. In light, this walking in the manner doesn't save you. It's already been done. He says it, but in light of all that God's done from you, you'll now walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Because of our position in the gospel, because of all that Jesus has done for us by grace, he says this grace now produces in us something new. It produces and changes the way we live, the way we operate with one another, and the way we operate with the outside world. This is our bloodline. Paul showed us our bloodline. So before he got to any commandments, he showed us our name. He showed us how God has changed us, how he's adopted us into a new family of God. He showed us our position in the gospel. And so he says, therefore... That's that first word when it's just Bible study 101. When there's a therefore, you always got to remember what it's there for. In light of all this other stuff, in light of all the things I just spent the last three chapters telling you, in light of all that, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul calls himself, I urge you. He's like, I urge you. He's, this is, he's, he's getting almost forceful, right? He's like, he's just pleading. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Change your conduct or change your name, he says, because your name is Christian. You bear the image of Christ. You carry the mark of what it means to be a Christ follower. And Paul reminds us this is a big deal. That's our bloodline. So Paul here, and then he's going to spend the rest of the time as he calls out this reality, he's going to show us what does it look like to act as a healthy church body? What does it look like as, a, as the family of God, as the church together, to walk in a way, in a way that's worthy of this call, to walk in a way that's, that's worthy of this name that we've been given, to be a Christian, to be saved by the good news of Jesus. And so Paul reminds us that as a church, this is of utmost importance to be spiritually healthy, right? All of us, we at some level think about our earthly bodies and wanting to stay healthy. It's just sort of something that we do, right? In our everyday, we, we want to exercise every now and again. We want to uh, eat right. We want to do the right things with our body. This is Paul's version of spiritual health. This is his workout plan, so to speak, for the church, 
He's saying, these are the things we need to do. This is the spiritual checkup. If you're not doing these things, things are going to start not working right. Things are going to start breaking apart. I played basketball with my two boys uh, and my nephew yesterday, and I feel like I discovered muscles in my legs that I didn't know existed. I was like, how is that sore right there? You're like, it's just like, golly, I know I, I look like the quintessential basketball player, but surprisingly enough, it was, it was quite uh, jarring for me to run full speed on a basketball court. At one point, my son Owen, uh, he tried to get a steal on me. He's eight, and I couldn't stop. I just told him, I said, once this train gets going that fast, I can't stop it very easily. And I just obliterated him. And he, like, he, he left a flesh mark with his elbow, all, just skidded across the court. And it was like, I'm so sorry, man. I was like, I, I don't know. I'm done, guys. I can't do this anymore. So I'm not any good at basketball, and I, my muscles are not healthy in that way. But Paul's saying... All right, you may not be good at basketball, but this is what it takes to have a spiritually healthy body together collectively as God's people. And there's three marks he's going to hit on. If you're a note taker, uh, these might be helpful for you. The first mark he's going to talk about in verses 1 through 6 is marked by spiritual unity, united by this divine calling that he's given us. The second mark of a healthy church body is that a healthy church body has a diversity of people and gifts. Uh, we're not all the same, but we're a diverse body that God has wired up differently so that our gifts can be brought to bear for each other, for the good of the church. And lastly, a healthy body is marked by maturity and growth. He's going to tell us to grow up. We can't be children forever. So here we go. First verses, verses 1 through 6. It begins with bearing the name of Jesus, and therefore we should be marked with unity. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, which, with which you have been called. The word walk is important. This is gonna, Paul is going to start using this word a lot as we continue down in the study of Ephesians. And Paul, he's going he's gonna to say, your, the walk in which you live your life, your, your spiritual walk in which you... Uh, are set on is very important. He's going to expound this in the next three chapters. And he wants us to know, he wants the church to know how we in our conduct and lives are keeping up and keeping, not keeping up, but in step with the good news of Jesus. The gospel has come in and done all these things and now our lives should produce something in them. We shouldn't go unchanged by all that God has changed in us. And remember, this is important. When he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, he's not, he's not writing to a pastor here. He's not writing to missionaries. He's not writing to professional worship leaders or professional Christians or whatever, right? He's, he's writing to ordinary, everyday businessmen, business women, mothers, fathers, friends, students. He's writing to this church, this whole collective of very different people from different ethnicities, from different backgrounds. They're bankers, they're port workers, they're farmers, they're mothers, they're fathers, they're brothers, they're sisters. And he says, every one of you, Christian, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've received from Christ. So we all have a calling. Not just pastors, not just missionaries. Paul says we all have a calling as Christ followers, as Christians. 
God has given you a calling on your life. He's placed a calling on your life. And this is one way that we're unified, is that we share in this longing to represent Jesus well and what he has called us to, right? It says, remember who you are in this life. You belong to Jesus. So he says, church, you're called to walk in a worthy manner of this calling, and so what he's getting at, a lot of us, I think, we have this, uh, this delineation between the secular and the sacred, or the, uh, our everyday life, kind of our normal life, and then our church life, or our spiritual life. I kind of have this track over here that I do my church things, and I have my church friends, and I have my, uh, sometimes I do a quiet time, or sometimes I listen to KSBJ, but then I've got this life over here, and I, I do these things, and I have these other friends, and I have, and they're kind of, we've, we silo them out. We kind of parse them out, and we don't really like it sometimes when they cross. The Apostle Paul doesn't write the scriptures or doesn't describe life for the believer in that way at all. He says it's one life. You don't, have, you don't keep them over here. There's one bookshelf for your Christian life and one bookshelf for your normal everyday life. He says that's, it's just life. So in all of life, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter whether you're working a job or working out or on the soccer field or in the cubicle, uh, your life as a Christian, you are called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So he's, he's, he breaks down this, sac- this sacred-secular divide that a lot of us, just by default, tend to uh, put up. He says, walk in a manner worthy. How do you do that? All right, that's easier. That's e- really easy to say, but how? Paul's even going to illustrate it right here in what he says and how he says it and what it means in his own situation to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Look what he says. He says in that previous verse, I, therefore, comma, a prisoner of the Lord. Remember where Paul's writing? We've been talking about this a lot. He's in prison. He's under Roman custody, writing this letter to the church. But he doesn't say, I, a prisoner of Rome. I, Paul, a prisoner under occupation of Rome. Uh, Wish I wasn't here, but I am. I'm writing you this letter begrudgingly. He says, no, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. In, his, in, his, in the situation, the very place he finds himself. He says, the Lord's doing something here. And I'm going to walk in a manner no matter where I'm at. It may not be ideal. I may not wish I was even here right now. But God has placed me here. And I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which he's called me. So whether you are working in a job that, man, you, just, you don't love it right now. Or whether you're just in the thick of diaper seasons and tons of babies and you're just you feel like you're just drowning and dizzy or you're trying to make ends meet at work or you're uh wherever you are paul says wherever god has placed you whatever situation you've landed in walk in a manner worthy of the calling which which you've been called in other words surrender to the lordship of jesus in your life Surrender to the lordship that Christ has called you in and has your, the place you're at right now. Look like Jesus in those places and in those moments. Because even in the places where maybe you wouldn't have written that story, uh, the light of the gospel can shine brightly in those places. So what does this conduct look like? How do you do this? What does that mean? Paul goes on to tell us exactly what that looks like. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of this calling? Well, in short, it looks like Jesus. That's the, that's the great Sunday school answer, but here it is, right? 
that it works real well here. My kids have already started to learn that one. Guys, uh, who do you think this story is pointing to? Owen. Uh, probably Jesus. Yeah, you're right, bud. Yep. This is another one of those great examples. He's going to tell us it's the conduct of Christ. This is right. Uh, Paul mentions the following character qualities when he says, how do you walk in a manner worthy of this calling? Well, as Christians, he's going to say, in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in bearing with one another in love, and being eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. He says, therefore, the more we look like Jesus individually, the more we look like Christ relationally together, the more united we become as a church family. And the more we live in this way, the more we bear with one another, or have uh, humble hearts toward one another, are patient with one another, are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit with the watching world looking in, they're going to see something that is unique that only God can do with a diverse group of people. So first, he says humility. Paul holds up humility throughout this letter and throughout all of his letters as an essential characteristic of a believer in Christ. Humility. He says, for unity to exist, there must be a humble, selfless people living for the good of others. You've got to think about others. You've got to think about those that God has placed in your life, not just think about yourself. Interestingly enough, uh, the term humility, when you read first century Greek, when you read other texts that were written during this same time, this word, humility, this idea of a humble person thinking of others rather than yourself is a, was used in a, in a negative connotation. In the first century, this would have been used uh, as, uh, as a ridicule. You would have been ridiculed had you have lived in this manner in the first century. Why? Because pride was valued. Pride was more highly valued than humility. Christians, in fact, were ridiculed in the first century for their humility. Why would you help? Why would you go do this when it negatively impacts you? You should look out for yourself. Get what's yours. Climb the ladder. It doesn't matter who you crush on your way to get it. Be strong and crush whoever is there to get it. That was the message of the first century. Good thing we've graduated from that. Right? Thank God we don't, have to, we don't have to deal with that anymore. Now, this is, I mean, our culture could say the same thing. Our culture says exalt yourself. We're constantly focused on ourselves all the time. It's the opposite of humility is self-exaltation. And we live in a selfie culture. Uh, it, is, it just permeates just our entire worldview right now, Right? We, we, it's just, it's pervasive and it's everywhere. But humility is being filled up with God. I like the way Tim Keller defines humility. A lot of times we hear that word humility and we think it's like, uh, I got to be a doormat. Like meekness and humility is, oh, I just got to let people walk all over me. Or I just, I need to be self-deprecating. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, Keller defines it really, really well. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. Uh, he says it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, meaning like, I'm a terrible person. I don't deserve anything. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I really like that. I think that's helpful. 
So it's not self-deprecating, I am terrible, I'm a horrible person, I can't accomplish anything. Humility is just filling your mind with the things of God and the people that God's put in your path and says, rather than think of myself, I want to think about who God has put around me that I might serve and love and be a blessing to others. Another thing he says is gentleness. We need to be a people marked with gentleness. Now, this is not timidity. Uh, It involves being mild-spirited. It involves being self-controlled. Moses, in fact, was described in the scriptures as one of the meekest men on the face of the earth. Numbers 12, if you wanted to read the story of Moses. Moses was no slouch. Moses faced down pharaohs. Moses led. He was one of the most gifted leaders in our entire Bible. But he was defined as being one of the most meekest people uh, that we find in the scriptures. And he was a dynamic leader, and he changed the power, the power dynamic in all of Egypt. But he was marked with meekness as one of God's leaders. His strength stood under God's control. That was his source. That was what he leaned on, albeit imperfectly, if you've read his story, like all of us. Patience. How are we doing here? This virtue. Some of you are already now like, man, is he going to wrap this baby up? It's, I got stuff to do. It's St. Patty's Day. I got a long way to go, okay? This is a practical application, preaching for an hour and a half. You could say I learned humility or I learned patience, right? This is a tough one. Some of us are like, we want it done like a microwave. It's like the microwave takes too long. Golly, is this popcorn going to be done already? It's like two and a half minutes. This is crazy. Hurry up. I can't stand here. We, just, we live in the fast food culture. We want it done, and we want it done five minutes ago. I don't want to wait for it. Or another a barometer, which is, this is unfair, but I'm just going to throw it out here. If you have to commute, uh, how is your patience doing on I-45 during your morning commute? That's when we're really tested. I don't know how you do it. Um, when we're in those situations, we just pray. We typically don't pray... Uh, for patience, we pray, Jesus, come quickly, because something bad is about to happen, because I'm about to go insane, right? But lack of patience displays a lack of humility and love for others oftentimes. This is a hard one. When we're impatient and we're ruled by our impatience, we're ruled by our impulses, uh, what we're saying to ourselves and those around us is that the world should revolve around me and my agenda, and if you don't get out of the way, then uh, you have no business being in my life. The Bible tells us that love is actually patient. Uh, praise God that Jesus was patient with me and that he's patient with you uh, because we uh, often don't get it and he labors with us in patience. What else does Paul commend to us? He says, bearing with one another in love. Another way you could translate this, the street level, is put up with each other. Maybe that's a good one. Put up with each other in love. Bear with one another in love. Right? So here's the reality. Uh, This this isn't you, of course, but there's people out there who are going to annoy you. But always so remember, there's people out there that you annoy too. It's just people. I always say church would be really perfect if if it weren't for all the people. Right? The minute we walk into a room, we make it not perfect anymore. The minute we walk into a community group, we make it not perfect anymore. Uh, it's great when there's no sinful people to even deal with. In a vacuum, this all works great. But Paul reminds us, hey, we're people. Bear with one another in love. So it's not just 
put up with people, roll your eyes, in love, press into them. Press into them. This is, relation, this is what relationship is all about. This is how marriage works as well, right? Bear with one another in love. And sometimes put up with one another in love, right? Never in my marriage, of course, or yours. It's always great. Next, he says, be eager to maintain unity. This is interesting, the way he worded it. He says, notice he doesn't say, be eager to create unity. He says, maintain it. Through Jesus in the gospel, through what he has called us, how he has saved us, God has created something. God was the one that created unity. And now we, as God's people, are here to maintain what he's already started. So Jesus is the one that holds it all together, and we as his people strive and lean into maintaining what God has already created. We don't create it. We're not creators. We're stewards, and we maintain what God has already given to us. So this means that we must be active, not passive, in maintaining unity at all costs, not becoming disunified. Disunity can creep into any relationships and just tear it down at its foundations, marriages, relationships with children, relationships with friends, relationships in churches. Disunity is a corrosive force. And Paul says, be eager, seek it out, be active in maintaining unity with one another. So important, so important. So we have to renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We have to renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness. This is tough. We have to renounce the tyranny of our own constant agendas, right? We've talked about this before. This is this response that everyone gives, including myself, to how was your week? It was busy. How was yours? It was busy. Okay, see you next week. Rinse and repeat. How was your week? Busy. How was your week? If it's really busy, it's crazy busy. Gosh, it's so busy. I don't even know what to do anymore. Okay, see you later. We have to begin to press down on the tyranny of all the agendas that keep us at bay from really engaging in actual other people to love and serve them well, especially in our culture today. So, and when we do that, we're able to walk with people in patience and in humility and in gentleness. And we've got to renounce our idealistic expectations of people in order to walk in love. Bear with one another in love. We're going to let each other down. I'm going to let you down. Your friends probably let you down at some point or another. Your spouse is going to let you down. But come alongside and bear with one another in love for the sake and good of the gospel and the unity of the body of Christ. Now, Paul goes on uh, and he points out these uh, one statements. He, there, he gives us seven of them and he goes on and it begins in, in verse four. And it's uh, important to note real quick before we move on that Paul is not teaching unity at any cost. It's not like a universal, hey, just whatever you want to believe, let's just maintain unity and smile at each other. It's not that. It's unity in Christ, what he's already created, being undergirded through the foundational principles of the gospel. That's where our unity starts. And then he goes on and gives us this confessional statement. In the olden days, or if you grew up in a more liturgical church, you would have, re, you would, your, the priest or the pastor would recite things and the congregation would recite it back. There would be these confessional statements that we would recite to each other to remind each other of the truths of who God is and who we are in Christ. And here, the Apostle Paul is giving a confessional statement. What does our unity stand on? What is the foundation of this unity? How is this going to happen? And he says, 
these things. He says, how are we going to be unified and get along and be humble and patient and kind in light of the gospel? And so underline this confession that Paul gives us. Uh, This is really important. Remember this. Teach this to your kids. He says, we're one body. We share a common existence in Christ's church. All of us, we're a diverse people. We're of one spirit. We share a common origin in the Holy Spirit's work. The Spirit is what creates unity. We're at, we have one hope. Our one hope is Christ and Him alone. Formerly, remember in chapter 2, He said, we're hopeless. But because of Christ, we have one hope now, He says. We're called to Christ. We have one Lord. We confess Jesus Christ as our Lord. Early Christians, when they would see each other, they would say this all the time, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. To remind each other, one Lord. Nero is not our Lord. The government is not our Lord. I am not the Lord. Jesus is Lord. They would help bend their uh, patience and will and their every day to the truths of who Jesus is. He says, one faith. We embrace the essential truths of faith. One baptism. We share in a common experience of being spiritually baptized into Christ, into the family, into this new covenant community. An act of baptism. The the water pictures that reality. We are one God, one Father. We share the same Father as His children. He's God. He's Father over all of His children, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status. We're adopted into this one family. And if you really want to geek out here and go real deep, notice the Trinitarian focus of this entire confessional statement. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Spirit. Paul's reminding us. So, we are united around our character. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And we're united by a confession. It's the gospel. So our character and our confession is what grounds us as God's people in this world. Um, We're also marked by spiritual diversity. Remember, unity in the church, unity is what Paul is teaching us, does not mean sameness, that we're all given diverse giftings and responsibilities. Then the purpose of them is to bless and enrich the church, meaning you and I, we're the church. Not a building or not not a physical place, but the people. God has gifted and wired all of us so that we can be a blessing and pour into one another. And so Paul provides us these key passages on spiritual gifts. And these gifts, he says in verse 8, are given, uh, Christ gives them out of his ge- generosity. He gave gifts to men. Jesus is a giver. Jesus wants to give you things. He does give you things. He's very generous. He has uniquely gifted you with a spiritual gift. And we're to be generous with our gifts. Jesus died and rose again. He ascended into heaven as a victorious king, and he gave gifts to his people, his church. That's amazing. And these gifts are ways to extend Jesus' ministry on earth. So we live out the gospel here on earth with one another, with the world around us. Because Jesus, in his kindness, gave you something unique. Now, you may be asking, what's my gift? How do I know? Well, um, you can take one of those spiritual gifts things. Those are sometimes helpful. Sometimes they're not. I think we tend to answer them in a way that we want to get the result that we desire most, right? And so like, oh, I took this and this means this. Those didn't really exist up until the last maybe 10 or 20 years, really. Uh, I, I say 
serve often and broadly in the church and amongst your people, and where, are, where your passions lie, God will begin to use you in mighty ways in the local church. But be generous with how he's gifted you and, and be willing to pour out the giftings he's wired you with for the good of the people that God's placed around you. And you might discover exactly how he's uniquely gifted you for the church, for the blessing of others in the church. Unity does not mean sameness. We all are wired up very differently. Verse 11 and 12, he's going to give a few of the church leadership giftings, those that lead in the church. And he gave apostles and the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the bodies of Christ. So we have diverse responsibilities. Uh, First Peter says Christ gave gifts so that we'd use them. Um, so these responsibilities are different for believers. And so here Paul is going to sort of make a little note. He's going to talk about leaders, and he's going to then talk about members, right? So each of them have the same value to God, but different roles in the church, right? And so it's just like in a football game, or it's like on a football team. You don't want the nose tackle playing quarterback. They're not, uh, they're not of lesser value. They just function in different roles. The church Paul talks about the body that way. We're all wired up and linked up differently, but it takes the whole body operating in a healthy manner to accomplish what God wants the body to accomplish. And so it's, it's for a purpose, though, verse 11. Leaders equip the saints. Paul mentions these unique positions of leadership in the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. We could spend a lot of time going through all these but these are folks that are gifted and articulating the gospel and teaching God's word and shepherding God's people, though everyone, every member of the church is, should be teaching and understanding the, God's word. But God has gifted certain people for the church that they would do these things. God has given teachers that they would bless the church through teaching God's word to these people. God has given apostles and prophets. These titles have a broad range and a specific range in the context here that it was written, apostles, I believe, were the 12 that God gave the early church for the advancement of planting of the churches. Um, but in a, in a more general sense, the, the word apostle just means sent ones, what, some that are sent out to go for the work of ministry. I believe here Paul is talking about the 12 apostles sent out. Prophets are people that apply God's word to God's people. They speak and communicate the word of God to God's people. Evangelists, those that are gifted in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those that don't know him. They're uniquely gifted. Everyone is called to evangelize. Everyone is wrapped up in the mission of the gospel. But God has given a unique gift to some people where they've never met a stranger. And they're in the grocery line at HEB and they can just share the gospel with that person. It doesn't freak them out. It gets them excited. Or in the church sense, in the old school sense, it's... Uh, what, what is it? One, one suit and three sermons. And they just go around and they have that one suit and they preach three sermons all over the place. They've just, God has gifted them in their personality in such a way that they just, they're wired up to call people to belief in the gospel. He's given pastors and teachers. This uh, side note is the only time in the New Testament the word pastor is used. Isn't that funny? We have pastors all over the place, but this is the only time in the New Testament, the word pastor. Usually it's used in conjunction with the word elder, elder and pastor. We take it here to mean the same office. But they're shepherds, shepherd leaders of the flock of God. That they are there to nurture, defend, protect, and sacrifice 
for the church. Pastors, teachers, and elders. Teach sound doctrine to God's people that we would stand on the foundations of the truth of God. So church, real, real quick, it's, it's the work of pastors and leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Um, so when you come to church, you don't come to someone's ministry. A lot of us, we, we, we have a very consumeristic understanding of the church, and we think we're just participating in someone else's ministry. In the church world, it's, no, God's, God has gathered for himself a group of people. He's called up some that want to teach the scriptures, some that go out and evangelize, some that proclaim the goodness of Jesus, some that shepherd the flock, some that care for, some gift, are gifted in administration, and they are here to teach and to encourage and admonish the believers so that believers walk out of this place. That's where ministry happens. So Paul's saying, I've, I've, I've equipped the, or I've called up some to equip those that God has called to be sent out. And he's looking at the church in Ephesus and saying, you're doing the work of ministry. You're the gospel workers in your cubicle, in your uh, office, in your school, in your, uh, in your book club or soccer fields or wherever else you do life. He says, you're sent out for gospel work. So application, church, is what are you doing with what God's given you? Where's he gifted you? Where's he calling you to press in to God's people or maybe those that don't know him? And are you taking that next step to really lean into how he's called you, how he's wired you? Do you view yourself as someone who is sent out to do the work of ministry? Because that's the way the New Testament describes church. You don't go to church, you are the church, and now you come and you hear the gospel and you're sent out to go do the work of the ministry. And so, um, I mean, we saw it today. Scott, Zach can't sing because he's sick. He's got so much green pollen like filled his lungs and his, his head that he's just, he just, it just doesn't happen. And so Scott's like, hey, man, I got this. That's the body of Christ working. It was beautiful. Right? When we're talking about unity of the body, it was awesome. So when members give, when members serve in the, in the children's ministry and preach the gospel to kids, when they visit those in need, when they play instruments, when they set up, when they tear down, when they lead groups, when you participate in groups, when you pray together, when you take a meal to a new, a new parent, when you come alongside and weep with those that are weeping, when you do all these things, you, you're doing the ministry that God's called you to. You're blessing others and helping the church be built up. You're using your gifts for the mission of the gospel to advance. Um, and finally, he says that a healthy church should be marked by maturity, that we should grow up. Um, but by, uh, we, he says this, the result of this unity, the result of this diversity, all these different gifts, is that th this idea of the body maturing to manhood in contrast to children. He uses a children and adult kind of analogy here. Uh, Paul David Tripp says this in his book. I really liked it. It's a book called Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer, a great book. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job uh, and an understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, 
something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. He wants us to grow and mature and understand we're a part of something greater than just ourselves. He paints a picture of maturity in Christ. He says, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal is for us to be like him. We should long for our character to line up with the character of Christ. Um, we should long for maturity individually and corporately. Church, are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you loving sacrificially? Do you have doctrinal stability? Do you know God's word and what you stand on? These confessional statements, not just unity for unity's sake, but unity in the truth of the gospel. Paul speaks of uh, maturity, verse, thing, verse 13, as growing up in the knowledge of truth. And then he goes on in verse 14. He says, we no longer should be children. We shouldn't be like kids, like little kids, tossed to and fro by, by the waves of doctrine, by every wind of doctrine, every new idea that comes sweeping through. We shouldn't just latch on to that and say, oh, that's, that sounds nice. Kids are like that. That's why they put shiny things on the bottom aisles of the grocery stores. They're swayed, right? That's why my wife doesn't send me to the grocery store because I cannot stay on budget and I get it all, right? It's like, ooh, that looks nice. Let's fill it up, right? That's, he, don't be swayed like that. Don't look at the shiny things at the bottom and just grab that because you think it's going to make your life better. What happens when you buy those things for your kids? In our case, in seven minutes, they're broken, and our $7.99 that we just spent is wasted. He says, don't fall to that trap. Don't be like a kid. Grow up. Grow up. He says, when you were first a Christian, you were a baby. And that's okay. Everyone's a baby. But Paul says, don't stay there. He says, you need to learn. You need to grow. The author of Hebrews says, you need to grow up and be teachers. You need to be the ones that love and treasure this so that you can communicate it to others around you. Children are gullible, right? They're more likely to believe things that aren't true. Children are easily deceived. False ideas and teachers and concepts can sweep in and they believe it is so true. He says, don't fall to this. He says, are you growing in your doctrine? Are you reading your Bible? Are you reading good, good books? And then he said, verse 15 and 16, truth joined together in love. Truth should always be presented to others and it should be presented also in love. It's not a hammer. You should know it, but it should be brought to others in love. And then finally, he, he closes this idea with, uh, in verse 16, this, this idea returns to this body metaphor where everybody, everyone's considered a limb in the body of Christ. We all serve a purpose because we're all a part of the body and we're all important and we all need each other to thrive. Every member is to contribute something. He says, all of you are in ministry. If that's true, everyone is a minister. God has just decided to reroute your paycheck through different means. But you're all called to serve and love the body of Christ for the glory of God, that in doing so, in doing so, it grows up into maturity and truth and love, and we bear with one another, we're patient, we're gentle, we're kind, 
And he says, and he closes this idea of us all being united like this and what an unspeakable privilege it is to be united to Christ and to one another. So church, we bear the name of Christ. We have his name. He says, he says stand with him, walk with him in conduct, be undergirded by the confession of the gospel. May that be our foundation. And then he says, and we're all called to serve and use the gifts that he's uniquely given us for the good of the church, for the glory of God. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for this text. God, Lord, I pray that as we're walking into just more application, that you would help us understand our place in the kingdom of God. You'd help us understand our place in this very church. God, I pray if there's anyone out there that maybe is longing and desiring to serve and to press in and to be a part of ministry, Lord, that they would come grab me. And we as, as pastors and leaders and shepherds would joyfully find a place for them to serve your church for your glory. Lord, help us be united. Help us live out these things and walk in a manner worthy of the calling of what you've called us. That we bear the image in the name of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and